I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Like any mother, this woman would do anything to protect her kids from this unpredictable world. But when a family friend turned predator targeted her son, just how far would she go to seek justice? This is the Ellie Nestler story. Hi, Megan. Hi, Amy. How you doing today? I'm fabulous and I think excited today. We have an announcement for our listeners, don't we? We do. Would you like to tell them what's going on? Amy, one thing we hear so much from our listeners is that they love to learn from our podcast and they're always asking, where can they learn more? Yeah, so we figured why not help other podcasts grow that share our same values and also hosts that are experts on the topics they present. This family of podcasts is coming together under our new organization, Article 3. And we are so excited to announce the first podcast to join our network, Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast. The hosts, Dr. Alexa Sardina and Dr. Alyssa Ackerman, are both also criminologists, except they are experts in sex crimes. The topic of the podcast is a difficult one, but you'll find out in the first episode that both of the hosts are also survivors of sexual violence. Most of their work is about helping people on a path of healing. In fact, they're working on the first of its kind restorative justice program. Now, this is a program that brings together victims and perpetrators of sexual crimes to encourage long-term and meaningful healing for both parties and to help reduce reoffending. 
These women are both so amazing, and we are proud to have them join our podcast family. So I know that they're working hard on season two, but for people who haven't listened, please go back and and check out season one of Beyond Fear anywhere you get your podcasts. Great. And Megan, before we get into the Ellie Nestler story, we have a few patrons to thank. Yes. Who do we have today, Amy? Well, first we have Zaneda Ramirez, and she gets a very, very, very special shout out because we forgot to include her in our last episode. So thank you so much, Zaneda, for your patience and for your support. Oh, thank you so much. So sorry you weren't in last episode, but glad that you are joining us in this one and going forward. We also have Jed, Angelica, and Sarah S. from Boston. And we have Kathy Schuler. So thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for all of your support. Thank you for leaving a review. Thank you for sharing our episodes. And stay tuned. At the end of today's episode, we have a few questions that we will be answering. We sure do. And speaking of Patreon, our next exclusive episode will be coming out on the 15th, which to me is up there with the case of Cindy James, Ellen Ray Greenberg. It's a real mystery, this case. Well, we talked about it, but I'm thrilled to talk to our patrons. And I know that we're going to be hosting a Zoom AMA soon. When is that, Amy? Our next Zoom happy hour will be on the 18th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And this will give us an opportunity to hear your thoughts on the case. And really on uh, hearing their thoughts really on on anything. I mean, we want to talk about this case for sure. But if they have questions, thoughts, uh, suggestions, we are open to all of it. We love these discussions. So we really look forward to seeing everyone. And Megan, um, we've had a few people say, what is an AMA? Right. And I have to admit, I didn't know what that was for a long time either. So AMA stands for Ask Me Anything. So when we say join us at our next AMA, it means just come hang out, ask us any questions that you have um, for either us about the podcast, about cases we've covered or suggest a case or just come and hang. Yeah. All right. We look forward to seeing you all there. Yeah. So now, Megan, let's turn to the Ellie Nestler story. Elena Ellie Starr Nestler was born on August 2nd, 1952 in Jamestown, California. And she was the eldest of three girls. She had a sister named Jan and a sister named Marietta. The family lived a pretty simple life. Ellie's father was a coal worker growing up. Some described Ellie as a tomboy. She would often be seen digging ditches, working on cars. You know, she was just kind of an outdoorsy kind of girl. At one point in childhood, things got a little rocky for her when she told her sister Jan that she had been raped and that she was not telling anyone else about it. There's not a lot publicly available about this event, however, just that her mental health suffered dramatically from this experience, and some say she even became suicidal at some points. Although she did suffer this traumatic event, according to her sisters, she became a pretty happy, friendly girl growing up, and she was able to kind of uh, move past what had happened to her. Ellie met and married her first husband at a very young age, and unfortunately, they divorced soon after getting married. After her divorce, she met her second husband, Bill Nessler. Now, Bill was a gold miner and a crop duster, and the two were pretty happy together. And soon after getting married, they had a child named Willie, and they moved to Liberia in hopes to mine for gold and hopefully make a fortune. They heard that, you know, there were these newly discovered gold rush areas in Liberia, and they wanted to get in on it. Of course. Yep. So do I. Um, While they were there, they had their second child, a daughter named Rebecca, who they called Becky. Now, during their time in West Africa, unfortunately, a civil war broke out. So because of the turmoil going on, Ellie brought her children back to California while Bill stayed in Liberia mining for gold. 
Now, when Ellie returned back to California, she did struggle a bit financially, and she just took on any odd job she could. I believe she was also collecting welfare checks to get by at the time because she was raising, essentially raising the two children on her own at this point. In the summer of 1988, when Ellie's son, Willie, was just six years old, he begged her to attend a Christian sleepaway camp. Now, Ellie was very strict with her children. She really never let them out of her sight. I guess you could say maybe it's because she was victimized as a child, but regardless of the reason, she was described as very overprotected. And in fact, she was basically a single mother, remember I said, and she had to work a lot, but she would always work her schedule around them because she wanted to make sure she was the primary caregiver at all times. I feel like six years old is also like that's a little young for sleepaway camp, too. I don't think my mom would have been thrilled with the six with me going away that young. Pretty sure Alan went to sleepaway camp at seven. Pretty sure I'll just take that comment back. Go ahead. But I mean, I'm, I'm just saying, yeah. I get it. Yeah, no, no, that is, I get it too. So basically, it took a lot of convincing by Willie to be allowed to attend the summer camp. He begged his mom and they have a family friend by the name of Daniel Driver who worked at the church and was a close family friend and he was going to be at the camp as well working. So that helped put Ellie's mind at ease knowing that he can help look after her son. Right. Returning home from summer camp after his short stay there, Willie was acting different, Ellie noticed. Oh, he was always a very happy, respectful kid. And Ellie would say that he started being angry, depressed. He was withdrawn. He was confrontational. And she wasn't sure what was going on. And she would ask him, you know, what's wrong? And he was really guarded. He wouldn't really talk to Ellie about anything. No one knew what was going on until about a year later when Willie was sleeping over at his aunt's house that he finally came to terms with what had happened to him, telling his aunt that Somebody at the camp did, quote, nasty things to me. And this was basically being inappropriately touched and sodomized by no other than Daniel Driver. Oh, the very friend that was the reason she let him go or felt comfortable. What a betrayal. And apparently the reason why Willie didn't tell anyone for nearly a year was because Driver had threatened to kill him, his sister and his mother if he told anyone what had happened. Of course, that's what they do. Yep. So let's stop for a minute and talk a little bit about Daniel Driver. Now, Daniel Mark Driver was born on August 27th, 1957 in Virginia. There's not a lot of publicly available information on his life growing up. However, it is known that he had a long history with the legal system. For example, in 1983, when he was 26 years old, he was convicted on more than one charge of oral copulation with a minor. And believe it or not, he served no jail time for this crime. Instead, he was only sentenced to probation after the judge received many letters from members of his church who vouched for him, saying he was a good guy and he wouldn't do something like this. What time frame was this again? What years? Uh, this was 1983. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is like slightly on the cusp of when we got really punitive, too. Yep. But obviously, that's just not an appropriate sentence. And it was only three years after this that he was the dishwasher in the kitchen at that Christian summer camp for kids. Not appropriate. Not at all. And people that knew him described him as a bit reserved, but very good to those kids around him. Many would say he was also a man of God. He was a very religious man, and he he was a good person who just wanted to help the children. Well, we know cases anywhere where people proclaim religion and then they c- commit very bad acts, mm-hmm. you know? It doesn't mean because you proclaim to be religious that you actually are. Mm-hmm. It can be a facade, or it can be also someone who's sort of delusional, thinks they're a good person because they immerse themselves in the church. And it's almost like a, you know, technique of neutralization. Yes, I was just thinking that. Right? To neutralize their guilt about doing something bad. Yep. Not surprisingly, Willie begged his aunt not to tell anyone. 
And his aunt said, there are some things I can keep secret, but this is not one of them. We have to tell your mom. And of course, Ellie went straight to the police. So soon after Ellie went to the authorities, not surprisingly, other victims came forward as well. And in 1989, there was a warrant issued for Daniel Driver's arrest for seven counts of child molestation of both Willie and three other boys, all who have gone to the same camp. Yeah, well, there's a pattern. He's a predator. (sighs) Yep. And he fled. And it was not until December of 1992. We're talking three years until he was arrested. And he was arrested because he got caught shoplifting in Palo Alto. Oh, my gosh. I, I hear these stories about people. It makes me think of like, um, what was his name? Robert Durst had got caught because he like stole a $7 sandwich or something like that. Yeah, they do it to themselves, right? And luckily they do. Luckily they do, but it's bizarre that mm-hmm. these trivial crimes that they would commit, you know, mm-hmm. knowing that they're wanted for much more serious crimes. Now, during the time that there was a warrant out for driver's arrest, around 10-year-old Willie was having a very difficult time. He was very scared. He was hypervigilant and he was worried that Driver was going to come back and kill him. Because remember, Driver said, if you tell anyone, I'm going to kill you. He told someone and now nobody knows where Daniel Driver is. Willie began talking to his mom about suicide. He was once even found with a gun, his mom said. His mental health was really declining. Finally, on April 2nd, 1993, Daniel Driver was brought into a makeshift justice court in Jamestown, California. And this is where he was having his preliminary hearing. A preliminary hearing, for those of you who don't know, is also what's known as a probable cause hearing. It's the hearing before the hearing, really to determine if there's enough evidence to actually go forward with the trial. There usually is. Yeah, usually is. But still, we need to, you know. Of course. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's part of the process. Part of the process. Part. Yes. And during this preliminary hearing, Willie Nessler was supposed to be testifying against Driver. Now, he's still a young kid at this point, and he was terrified. The idea of facing Driver and to talk, not only was it terrifying, but it's also embarrassing to talk about what happened to him. He reportedly got sick multiple times as he was like entering the courtroom. And Ellie had asked several times if her son could just testify over a video or have a closed hearing, and all of her requests were rejected. That surprises me because with child witnesses, they'll often do the closed circuit from another location. Well, I just want to let our listeners know because I think it's clear that while it might seem unfair to require a child to testify against an accuser, the Sixth Amendment guarantees the right for criminal defendants to confront their accusers. Now, what that means is the Constitution guarantees rights. And Daniel Driver, although he's a predator, he does have the right to confront his accuser. So what happens here? Well, It depends on the state. You know, what we're talking about here was in the early 90s. And in the early 90s in California, the motions were rejected. However, luckily, we've come a little bit further. Many states now have enacted laws that protect children, specifically those who have been victims of sexual abuse. And it really wasn't until the mid 80s when many states started allowing child testimony via closed circuit camera. In these situations, the defendant can see the child. However, the child doesn't have to come face to face. Now, they're still subject to cross-examination because that is the constitutional right of the defendant. There's also some states that have videotaped depositions, mm-hmm. which are videotaped interviews. And this is when you'll have the lawyer for, from both sides and a child advocate. So there's still the right to cross-examination. The right to cross-examine exists in many forms. I just don't see why they, could have made, uh, they couldn't have made some accommodations for this child. Yeah, and research shows us that children who testify have long-term negative outcomes, right? You could suffer mental health issues, um, actually PTSD. 
a lot of detrimental effects of having a child, not only a child testifying, but a child who is the victim of sexual abuse testifying. Anyway, so before Willie was set to testify, there was the testimony of another little boy about his victimization with Driver. And Ellie had seen the mother of the boy. There was like a recess or something. And the mother told Ellie that, you know, things are not really going that well. So Ellie was convinced that Driver was going to walk free again. And when I say again, remember, in the past, he had molested children and he was given what probation? Understood. So at this point, she made a decision that would change everything. When Driver was led into the courtroom, he allegedly smirked at Willie and Ellie. And as you could imagine, this simply enraged her, as it would anyone. During a recess at the hearing, it was then that Ellie took out a 25 caliber pistol from her sister's purse, walked up to Driver, and shot him six times, about three feet away from him. Now, four bullets hit him in the head, one hit him in the neck, and the last one missed Driver and was found in a nearby wall. These wounds unsurprisingly killed Driver almost instantly. Wow. Yeah, I bet you didn't see that coming. I didn't because I don't know this case. So yeah, wow. After the shooting, Ellie surrendered almost immediately and she was placed in handcuffs by the police. Those who witnessed the event said that Ellie appeared to be very calm and almost as if she was proud of her actions. When Ellie was taken into custody, she yelled out, quote, you don't understand, he has raped hundreds of boys. Keep that in mind because this statement would come back to haunt her when she was fighting for her freedom. Mm-hmm. The main question, of course, was not who was responsible or who killed Daniel Driver. What do you think the question here was? Was she sane when she did it? Exactly. Was Ellie Nessler competent enough to know what she was doing in that courtroom at the time? And then you also have to wonder, like, it was her sister's weapon. So could her sister get in trouble for having the weapon? Now, Megan, I think we should stop and talk for a minute. Why was she allowed to have a gun in the courtroom? So I was just going to say that when you pass through the metal detectors, usually that would not be allowed. She must have slipped through the cracks on that one. Remember, again, early 90s now. So the majority of states ban firearm possession in courtrooms. However, some states do allow possession under certain circumstances. Remember, again, constitutional right, given that the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, does not extend to federal buildings. But remember, this was at the county level. Okay. Most states have some form of courthouse carry ban. Some states that say it's okay if you have a permit to carry. You can bring it into the courthouse, but not the courtroom. Other places say the judge gets to say um, if, you know, so actually some states the judge is allowed to have a firearm, a prosecutor and the defense attorney can. It's very specific, like most things. I didn't realize there were, there was that much variation among states. I, I didn't realize that so many states would allow this kind of discretion. There's only a handful of states. Some states leave it up to the judge's discretion. Because remember, when it's a judge's courtroom, like they get to decide the rules, right? I wouldn't have known that for firearms. But again, it does not extend to federal buildings. Okay. So we're not talking about federal court. Um, also, Amy, the question is, was she saying why was there a fire, you know, uh, why was there a firearm allowed in the courtroom? But then pre- was it premeditated? Yes. Okay. While many believe that Ellie Nessler was what you would call a mama bear for serving justice for her son, some support would actually start waning over the next few weeks as more information about Ellie Nessler started to emerge. Now, the same day that she killed Driver, she said in a tape recorded statement that she had not intended to kill Driver and she was unsure whether she had done the right thing or not. She says she was just tired of all the pain that Driver caused her and her son and thought that this had destroyed her sense of right and wrong. There are many inconsistencies because if you recall, Ellie said, quote, you don't understand, he raped hundreds of boys. And then she said she was unsure whether her actions were right. 
This really just calls for an investigation into her mental state at the time of the shooting. In a taped statement, Ellie had denied using any drugs or alcohol the day of the shooting. But according to the investigator who interrogated her, he claimed that after the video was turned off, she admitted to having done crack once that morning. She also admitted to using drugs the day she went in for her blood sample, but said she was not a frequent user. Well, that doesn't sound very good. I'm not going to lie. Well, let's see what the toxicology report says. Okay. The toxicology report showed that Elliot tested positive for methamphetamine and trace concentrations of amphetamines, which are known as stimulants that can cause, you know, rapid heartbeat, delirium, panic, psychosis, and heart failure. So the concentration that was found in her system was typical of someone who had taken substantial doses during the previous one to three days. Well, that's not good either. After reviewing her case, investigators came to the conclusion that Ellie was ultimately set off by driver Smirk as he was led into the courtroom. She was found not guilty of first or second degree murder for the killing of Daniel Driver. Instead, the jury returned a verdict of guilty on the lesser offense of voluntary manslaughter. It's jury nullification in that it's really probably not manslaughter, but I mean, she's sympathetic. People sympathize with a mother trying to protect her child. I mean, that's a, as well as, you know, I do as well. Yeah. And her lawyers, you know, were trying to push for not guilty by reason of insanity. Of course. Not guilty by reason of insanity is an affirmative defense, which argues that the defendant is not responsible for their actions due to an episodic or persistent psychological disease. People might not be aware because in the media, I think it's portrayed different. In the media, it seems like the insanity defense is used often. However, less than 1% of all felony cases actually have introduced the insanity defense. And of those that do, very few defendants are actually found not guilty by reason of insanity. Right. It's very sparingly used. It's usually where sanity is really a question. Three defense experts testified that Ellie was legally insane at the time of the shooting. Now, two of the three reasoned that Ellie was suffering from PTSD as a result from her own sexual abuse that she had suffered as a child. And then the abuse of her son kind of triggered things for her. These experts believe that while Ellie knew that killing Driver went against socially accepted norms, she thought she actually believed that she was doing the right thing. And they also claim that Ellie misperceived reality because she believed that authorities were aware of what she was going to do and they were okay with her killing Driver. Makes no sense. I mean, that one's hard to prove. Yeah. And it might be a stretch. The final expert concluded that Ellie suffered a brief reactive psychosis in response to the emotionally overwhelming events. And during this psychosis, she operated in a delusional manner that caused her to lose the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. That's possible. Yeah. So additionally, while the two experts believe that Ellie's drug use was not particularly relevant to her mental state at the time of the killing, one expert diagnosed Ellie as suffering from amphetamine intoxication and psychoactive substance abuse during the shooting. I think that's a little bit far-fetched. They're trying to mitigate it, but... I struggle with this part as well, because even though we do know addiction is a disease, there's also some voluntary aspects to her. Um, so it's almost like a voluntary intoxication. Yeah. It's So I struggle with this one a little bit. Yeah. I'm going to reserve my judgment, though, till the end completely. Okay. In the end, all three experts concluded that Ellie was unable to discern what the generally accepted moral standard of right and wrong was when she killed Driver. And now this was due to the combination of her mental disorders, drug use, and the circumstances of the day, being that... It was a highly emotional situation. Which it was, yeah. Yeah. Now, on the prosecution side, four experts testified that Ellie was legally sane at the time of the homicide. They did recognize the diagnosis of PTSD and amphetamine abuse. And they did say that, yes, of course, these things can increase impulsivity. However, none of this 
affected her capacity to think or act rationally. Okay. And that's what I would expect the prosecution to say. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, they, of course, came to the conclusion that she was legally sane. Okay. So after coming to the conclusion that Ellie was sane at the time of the killing, she was sentenced to 10 years. And while she was serving her sentence, things were not going great for her children. Willie was sent to live with his aunt, while her daughter, Rebecca, was sent to live with her grandmother. While serving her sentence, Ellie received extensive media attention and was interviewed by Oprah. Did you? You didn't know about this case, right? No, I didn't. Yeah, you should look it up. The interview on Oprah is pretty interesting. Of course I will now. So during the interview with Oprah, she reported having mixed feelings about shooting Daniel Driver, saying, quote, I'm sorry I killed someone and that I'm not with my children. But on the other hand, I wish the judicial system would have taken care of it. I wish I wouldn't have had to. So Ellie says she pulled the trigger because she was afraid that the system wouldn't do anything. So this might sound like a very insensitive thing to say, but uh, I mean, there would be more of an argument for her had she just let the process play out and see whether or not it did. She claims it's because that mother told her that things weren't looking good. But this is only the preliminary hearing. You're very early on in the But that's process. also then on the a flip side, that's probably a strong argument supporting, uh, supporting her, you know, kind of insanity claim at the time that that set her off. Yep. And it wasn't really as, you know... Because now that I think about it, if it did play out and it didn't work out well at the end, then it would look more premeditated. So, okay, I'm just working this out with you. Go ahead. Very soon after the verdict, Ellie filed a motion claiming that there was juror misconduct during the deliberation on her case. So let's very briefly talk about the evidence of juror misconduct. This juror said that the babysitter of the Nestler family would frequently talk bad about Ellie, saying she was not a good mother and that she would often leave her children unattended, and that she was a, quote, crankster. It was also alleged that the same juror would continue to bring up outside evidence that they were told specifically not to discuss. The trial court concluded that there was, in fact, jury misconduct, and Ellie ended up accepting a plea for time served, and she was released. Now, she only ended up serving a total of three years when the court had overturned her conviction on this appeal. Sorry, what was the original sentence? Ten. Ten okay. years. Okay. So she served three years. You know, instead of going, instead of a new trial, we see this, the prosecutor will try to strike a deal at this point. And I think it was smart of Ellie to take time served. Oh, very smart. Point. Yeah. yeah, very smart. Smart on, on both, probably on both ends. I think so. I mean, three years for shooting someone in cold blood, or was it? I guess we'll talk about that. But after her release in an interview, Ellie explained that when she looked back at her actions, she said that, you know, her son needed help and he needed support and they just didn't know how to deal with it. And she says, in hindsight, she wouldn't have done it. I mean, it's easy to say in hindsight, but, you know. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. Meanwhile, Willie's not doing great. He had gotten a lot of trouble with the law on multiple occasions. Throughout his teenage years, he was sent away to boot camps. He was chronically unemployed as a young adult. And he served several jail stints for various low-level crimes. I mean, that's not really surprising, given his victimization and then the absence of his mother. It's really the perfect storm. Yeah. During a five-year period, in fact, Willie was arrested and booked at least 18 times on robbery and drug-related offenses. And now Willie's not the only one having legal troubles. Because in 2001, not long after having her conviction overturned, Ellie was arrested again for charges related to manufacturing and selling meth where she pled guilty and received six more years in prison she got six i mean we talk about this all the time she got six years for the drugs and three years for murder yep this is very interesting in 2004 while she was serving her sentence her now 23 year old son willie was arrested and sentenced to 28 years to life for a murder in the first degree essentially willie had an altercation 
with a man and stomped him to death. Oh, this is terrible. And this event literally occurred within hours of him being released for good conduct. Remember, he had served time for assaulting the same man. They let him out on good behavior. And within hours, he killed the man. So Ellie was released in 2006. However, she was unable to visit her son in prison. In fact, they hadn't seen each other for several years between both of them serving time. Ellie was enduring the final stages of breast cancer. And she had had breast cancer for several years at this point. She was suffering breast cancer since her first incarceration. Okay. Unfortunately, on December 26, 2008, Ellie died from breast cancer and her daughter, Rebecca, who is now 23 years old, had to bury her alone because Willie was not allowed to leave prison for his mother's funeral. It's a heartbreaking story, Amy. Yeah, it's just the domino effect of this one event that kind of triggered a series of unfortunate events. Now, back to Oprah. Remember, early on, Ellie had spoken with Oprah. Rebecca, the daughter, did another interview with Oprah after her mother's death, saying that, you know, it's been very hard for her to move forward because both her brother and her mother were in prison for the majority of her life. Luckily, though, for Rebecca, she kind of beat the odds because you would expect that she would have had difficulty. However, she did have some loved ones who took her in and they were able to help her move on in life and get back on, you know, a, a good path. So we always talk about nature and nurture, right? So she was lucky that she was able to, you know, going to school, working. She got married. She had children of her own. But, you know, she's she talks about how you could see these interviews. Actually, she does the interview with Oprah, and she also does an interview in 2010 with Dan Abrams. You know, Dan Abrams from of ABC? Of course. And they actually film her going to meet with Willie in prison. Oh. But they can't take cameras in. But, you know, they have it. The car drive up there. And then Dan Abrams does go inside with her. And then Dan Abrams talks a little bit about how he was surprised how Willie was very you know, introspective. He was able to talk about what kind of what set him off on that path. And he did talk about the sexual molestation as a child that set him off on this path of destruction, saying, quote, it's a scar that you have to live with for life and nothing is going to fix that. But he seemed to be doing well considering. Now, Willie and Rebecca have stayed close over the years. They write each other very often. She helps to take care of Willie's nine-year-old son. Unfortunately, Willie is not eligible for parole until 2031 which means he's not going to be part of his son's life until, you know, his son's almost an adult. Well, maybe through his sister, he will be, though. I mean, yeah. at least it sounds like she's doing something to keep the bond. I'm glad to see they both wound up bonded together. And perhaps Willie uh, at that time, too, will have aged out of crime mm -hmm. or will, you know, have uh, been rehabilitated if possible. Yeah. This event sparked a nationwide debate on vigilante justice and the need for stiffer penalties for child molesters. Because that's how this all started, according to Ellie anyway, was that Daniel Driver had gotten off easy the first time he molested children, and she was worried that that was going to happen again. In terms of the child sexual predator laws, the debates then would probably be a moot point now, because beginning in the 90s, um, there was a series of sex offender legislation that was passed that is extremely or much more restrictive of uh, predators, much more punitive and allows for them to be placed on registries, allows for community notification. So you had Megan's Law, Adam Walsh Act. All of these acts have seriously increased the surveillance that we um, have for sexual predators and also the punishment they get. So at that time, the laws were different, but now this would be less of an argument. Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you. So when we talk about theories, Megan, I think there's a lot going on here because we can talk about why Ellie did what she did, the fact that Willie ended up murdering a man. I think we can see a lot of neutralization here. Oh, certainly with Ellie. With I think. El yes. Yeah, so if we let's talk about Ellie first, I think for Ellie, we see neutralization where she was. There was a, really a denial of the victim and a denial of injury in the sense that 
she believed, as many people believed as well, that he deserved to die and she had to take the law into her own hands. She did not feel like she was doing anything wrong. She felt like she was serving justice for all of these children who were the victims. So I wonder if she believed that she was really suffering from temporary insanity. I have to tell you, I'm not entirely certain either way. Um, If I had to guess, I would say there was a trigger and I would say that, you know, she was probably not able to make the most rational decisions, but I don't know if I would go with full-blown insanity. I still feel like there was a level of, or I still feel like there was a level of premeditation here or ability to recognize her actions. I agree. I think even if one makes the argument that it was her sister's pocketbook, it seemed very clear to me that either she put it there or she knew it was there. I think so too. And I think it was, I don't know that she went that day saying, I'm going to kill him today, but I think she brought it along just Just in in case, case, just in case she needed to. And then that smirk set her off and things were... But that does show, I think there's some premeditation here. I agree. And it was very much, you know, in cold blood. I mean, she shot him in the head. And I do think that the techniques of neutralization absolutely apply best Mm -hmm. to her actions here. I also think general strain theory is relevant here because the failure to protect her son, along with the presence of abuse, triggered this emotional response. Absolutely. Actually, this explains Willie's behavior as well. I think I was going to say general strain theory applies to his behavior too. You know, uh, unfortunately, an inability to cope with the presence of abuse, Mm -hmm. unhealthy coping mechanisms will, you know, translate according to general strain theory to acts of aggression and anger and unfortunately to criminal behavior. I'm wondering if you see any of the social learning theories here, because it strikes me that differential reinforcement might be relevant because Ellie served only three years for premeditated deliberate murder. Now, I'm wondering if that teaches Willie that, you know, you can kill someone and not face severe punishments. Because remember, with differential reinforcement, we're more likely to model behaviors that are positively reinforced. And I think three years for a murder, I think that's getting off pretty easy. It is. I don't think it applies for some reason. And it's not because it doesn't make sense theoretically. It Mm -hmm. does. But my instinct tells me that he was just so... He had stuff going on. Yeah, I think he was just so traumatized. I think there was just... He had so many of the triggers um, and and I don't think Mm -hmm. he was able to cope with that. So I don't think he actually probably... I don't know that that was reinforced so much by Ellie's behavior. Yeah. And as Rebecca would say... At some point, it became clear to the family that Willie was suffering more from the absence of his mother than he was from the early childhood molestation. Right. So that's something interesting to think about is, you know, did Ellie do more harm than good? Is it her fault that Willie is where he is right now? Because keep in mind, he was still a young kid who was going through a traumatizing event and then his mother was taken from him. I mean, what I can say is that I understand her response and I understand the feeling. And I mean, I would feel the same way. But unfortunately, I do think that she did more harm than good by her actions. You know, I I mean, I'm not sure, but I think it would have worked out better for Willie if his mother was present in his life and raised him Mm -hmm. in a more stable home. I would hope so, though. I do understand that she was also a drug user, so I would hope that she would rehabilitate as yeah. well and stop using and provide a more stable life for him. I, I do think it would have worked out better yeah. for him. You also have to wonder how much of her using was due to the fact of, you know. Sure, the stress. Yeah, yeah no, so I it's absolutely so hard. can't say. I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's very clear that we're seeing that there's psychological, biological, and sociological factors at play here. Because I do think there was something going on biologically. The drugs could have impacted her ability to have rational thought process. So when you take that combined with her own history of abuse, you see the biology mixing with the psychological, mixing with the sociological factors 
And we said before, it's the perfect storm of events. But in the end, I think the hard question for me is now, and I want to know what you think first, was justice served? Did the criminal justice system get it right? This is a tough one. I do think that although Daniel Driver, there was a lot of evidence that suggested he was a predator. At the end of the day, we have a system and our system says you're innocent till proven guilty. And our system also says you can't take the law into your own hands. Now, that's a slippery slope. Yeah, that's the whole reason we have a system of law and order, because having the government take it, punishment into their hands prevents like the greater evil of retribution or I'm sorry, the greater evil of vigilantism. So, I mean, I think three years is a short amount of time for what to me seems like first degree murder. While I do sympathize with her, I, I still think she got off a little easy. Yeah, that's a fair point. I sympathize with her look a lot, I have to tell you. And as someone who's extremely reactionary too, I don't know what I would do. I don't have children, but I, I feel when you're telling me the story, I could feel like the heat inside mm -hmm. of me, like, wow, I would, yeah. you know, would I do the same thing? I don't know that I wouldn't. I'd hope that I wouldn't. I do know, yeah, as someone, you know, we're kind of justicians in, mm -hmm. some, well, so, in some ways. So I feel like the system exists to prevent this. I don't condone this behavior. Mm -hmm. I think three years is a little short, but I don't know that I have so much of a problem with it, given that he was clearly a serial predator, mm -hmm. which I, I understand is not maybe not the most popular point. But I I'm not sure I have that much of a problem with the three years. But I think either way, three years, five years, seven years, 10 years, her actions, unfortunately, had a very negative um, consequence for her her child. I also think there's another argument that he got off easy. Yeah, right? right. You could look at it that way. Yeah, because that's what some people say about the death penalty. It's not punitive enough because he tortured this little boy and he just gets shot in the head, dies instantly. Also, we know that sexual predators don't fare very well in prison. That's what I mean. Yeah. Exactly. So for him, you know, if you really want to punish him, I don't know that killing him is the right way to go. No, I'm sure he would have suffered greater in prison. Because from what I understand, he died almost instantly. So there was no, you know, pain and suffering. Well, there. I think at the end, it's safe to say neither one of us really supports vigilante justice. No. But this is a hard case. This is a hard case because you have to be sympathetic to this yep. woman and her child. And there is a made-for-TV movie called Judgment Day. You would like it. Oh, well, you know I love all of these. 1999, so. so it's really like one of those. <laughs> you know what? That's crazy because I didn't know this case, and now I do. Christine Lottie plays the mother, and now I know this case. And you oh, saw it. Oh, my gosh. I saw it years ago. I've watched all the I bit. knew. That's why I'm surprised yep. when you said you didn't know it. I can't believe I didn't associate the two, but I that's can. That's funny. All right. Well, okay. you should catch the movie. It was a good movie. Either way, this case is so tragic. There's so many victims, and I'm happy to know that policies have changed since this case. And because of that, we don't see as much of these sexual predators getting off easy. Yeah, I'll end with saying sexual predator laws have changed substantially and they're, you know, they have increased in punishment. I'll also end by saying I'm glad to hear that Rebecca and Willie were able to establish a relationship that she's caring for his child and that she wound up doing okay. Um, so, I mean, there is somewhat of a silver lining here or not a silver lining. There's some there's somewhat of a positive outcome here. Yeah. Amy, thank you so much for bringing us this very tragic uh, case, yeah. but I think it was an important one and it raises important questions. And we look forward to hearing from you on this topic. Yeah. Uh, I know you're going to close us out here. Yes. Before we leave today, we have two questions from two of our supporters. The first question is from Angelica. Now, Angelica says, what changes could or should be made to the U.S. prison system in order to encourage rehabilitation and lower recidivism rates? How could we turn prison into a place that helps address underlying issues instead of degrading and dehumanizing people? Great question. 
I can talk about this forever because this is an area that I teach in, an area of my research. Did you want to say anything? You want me to just do it? Go ahead. You take it and then I'll add if I have anything. I think before we talk about rehabilitation and recidivism, we need to think about the front end of the system because we simply incarcerate too many people. So the first thing we need to do is stop criminalizing certain drug crimes, Mm -hmm. reform the plea bargain system, um, just provide more support in disadvantaged communities because we know that a lot of individuals end up in the system because they were um, not given the support they needed to succeed in life. So that's the first part. But if we're really talking about what we could do to turn prison into a place that helps people, of course, we need to offer more programs and more effective mental health treatment. But I think it's important to draw from other countries. If you recall, when we spoke to Amanda about the Italian criminal justice system, Megan, when we went to London and we saw how they treat their inmates, it's simply giving people more autonomy, Mm -hmm. letting people maybe choose what they want to wear within parameters, Mm -hmm. having private bathrooms, having private showers. Like we could, it doesn't have to be an expensive endeavor. We can start small, just give people back a bit of humanity. I was totally going to point that out, Amy. I just wanted to mention that as well, that I think that we could be more humane um, and that's easy, as you said, to do. I also think that we could, on the back end, if we're talking about rehabilitation, remove the collateral consequences that people suffer when they come out. Um, so those you know, consequences are that they can't get jobs, they can't get into educational programs, they can't get housing, they can't access benefits. So all of those are totally hindering proper rehabilitation. So I think, as you pointed out, we can do things on the front end, we can do things in prison, and then I'm saying we can do things on the back end as well. I agree. And just to piggyback off of that, I think expungement for certain crimes is an expungement means to, you know, wipe, kind of wipe the slate clean, let someone have a new beginning because a a criminal record follows someone for the rest of their lives. And like you said, because of that record, they have all these other consequences. Thank you for that question, Angelica. It's a great one. I really love that question. Thank you so much. Okay, we have a second question as well, don't we, Amy? Yes. Our next question is from Jed, who is a criminal justice major and plans on becoming a cop, then a detective, and then an FBI agent, which is awesome that we these are the kind of people we have listening to our podcast. Mm-hmm. Right. So he wants to know, should there be a federal law that orders all suicides to be investigated as homicides? That's a very interesting question. One that I haven't thought about before. Um, should all suicides be investigated as homicides? I'm not sure is the truth. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, I think more should be. I think that there are obvious cases of suicide that have been dismissed way too early and way too easily. So I think maybe they should all be investigated thoroughly, but not necessarily presumed to be anything other than without evidence. Yes, because we know the danger that comes with presumptions as well. Right. So it's not good to assume that something is a suicide, nor to assume that it is a homicide. But as Megan said, you need to have an open mind. And really look at what's in front of you because, you know, we've covered cases and our next patron case is going to be a case that really brings this discussion up. Because sometimes I think police are too quick to think they know what happened and then confirmation bias sets in and that's problematic. Good question. There's a second part of Jed's question, right? Yes. This one I think we can talk about forever. So we got to try to keep it short, Megan. Okay. Okay, good. All right. He says, do you believe that Crystal Kaiser should have charges against her dropped? For those of you who don't know about this case, she, Crystal, shot a man 
who basically was trafficking her. Yeah, she shot her trafficker. She was an underage girl who was being abused by an older man. Um, She had shot him several times, set his house on fire, and then stole his car. Now, she was underage, and there is a lot to go, a lot to talk about with this case. So I don't want to get into our thoughts on the case. But when we're talking about should charges be dropped against her because she was the victim, I think that's the question. And this reminds me of the Centoya Brown case. It reminds me exactly of that. I think the important to point out the controversial issue here is that, yes, she was. I don't think there's much disputing that she was victimized. But what they're saying is that can you use the affirmative self-defense case um, or self-defense argument because she premeditated and planned it out? And that's the issue here. But we've seen that applied to domestic violence cases before. You know, self-defense shouldn't always be looked at as the heat of the moment. Um, That's just not an appropriate application of it. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at the possibility, the truth is, I think that she should be able to employ this defense. Should the charges be dropped outright? I will say I don't know enough about the case to say, but I think absolutely she should be able to use the self-defense defense. And I think that would substantially lessen any type of punishment that she might receive. I agree. I I do not think we should drop all charges. It does not send the right message because this was very much premeditated and it's a slippery slope. If we start allowing people, it's vigilantism. Yes. Yeah. You know, you can't it, it's not OK for us to take the law into our own hands. However, I think her charges should be reduced significantly. Mm-hmm. And I don't think she should spend decades in prison. I agree. I think that she's learned her lesson. I think we need to give her something. But I think she needs rehabilitation. I think she needs programming. On the record, she said to the court that she's not expecting to receive no punishment. Um, I think she just, you know, is hoping for some consideration given her circumstances, circumstances, which I think is completely fair. Yep. And I think she will get it. She has a lot of supporters. Yeah. Okay. Now, I do think it's important that she is charged with something. There should just be reduced culpability, perhaps, you know, manslaughter. I do not think that they should charge her with premeditated murder. And at least the jury should be able to consider self-defense. And maybe maybe it's appropriate for the jury to make their decision based on that information. I agree. All right. Well, thank you, Jed, for a great question. And good luck with your studies and future in law enforcement. Yes. Thank you all so much for listening today. And we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today include the Los Angeles Times, RecordNet.com, People vs. Nestler, 1997, South Florida Sun Centennial, CBS News, The New York Times, Oprah.com, Law.Cornell.edu, The American Academy of Pediatrics, The American Bar Association, and The American Psychological Association. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. 
Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.